0: to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I am your host, Mystic Mark, and today's guest, Jason Horsley, is an esteemed author and intellectual known for his captivating works that delve into the depths of human nature and the enigmatic realms of culture, art, and philosophy with a unique perspective and a keen eye for the intricacies of the world around us. Orsley has carved out a distinct place for himself in the literary landscape. As the mastermind behind landmademan.com, a platform dedicated to exploring the complexities of modern society, Orsley fearlessly challenges prevailing narratives and encourages readers to question the underlying structures that shape our lives. His writings offer profound insights into the intricacies of power, identity, and the human condition, prompting readers to reevaluate their perceptions and embark on a journey of self-discovery. Drawing from a diverse range of disciplines and drawing inspiration from both ancient wisdom and contemporary thought, Horsley weaves together a tapestry of thought-provoking ideas, inviting readers to join him. In exploring the uncharted territories of the mind with an engaging writing style that combines intellectual rigor with lyrical elegance. He captivates audiences and invites them to contemplate the deeper dimensions of existence. In today's episode, we tackle his latest book, Kubrickon, which is not for the close-minded fan of Kubrick. Keep an open mind and prepare to be offended if you do love Stanley Kubrick and his movies. And also stick around for the end where Jason, again, challenges the norms and uh, may possibly offend those who love smoking cannabis. So keep that in mind as you listen that uh, Jason is a provocative thinker who questions things in a radical way. And he definitely got me to question uh, my lifestyle in many different ways. So enjoy this episode and prepare to be challenged. Thank you for tuning in. Here it goes with Jason Horsley.
1: So I feel like your lead, sir. I no, I think this is what you were you were trying to get to, and what I get talk about in Vice of Kings. That there is a, a hidden a cryptocracy, uh, a kind of shadowy—I call it the superculture—because it's not really under the culture; it's over the culture because it's creating the culture, but it's hidden just as a, a subculture is hidden. It's hidden in this weird way because the culture that we live in and take for granted is created by the superculture, so it's created in such a way that it it, the superculture the ones who are creating it are concealed by it so it's like a cloak culture is a cloak for the culture the superculture that's behind it and uh, so with something like lolita it's it's possible that kubrick was making that for the reasons that i already touched on but also as a way to signal to the um, super cultural society organized crime and intelligence operatives and secret societies and whatever else that unfortunately we a lot of it we do have to speculate about and just give names just to not just be able to finish our sentences but but i think what i'm referring to here even if we haven't direct experience of it signaling to them that he was aware of this level of Thing and that he was aspiring to and I think something as similar is going on in Nabokov and it's very hard to distinguish between somebody who is halfway in and halfway out of the superculture and and who is ex- trying to expose it or at least trying to appear as if they're exposing it and who's actually merely trying to tip his hand or signal to the inside to say look, I know what's going on here I'm, I'm down with it
0: All right. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me today is someone who I am looking so forward to talking to. He is a forward thinker in this realm, someone who has been writing for many years. He's written a dozen or more really great books, and we're going to talk about his most recent book today. We're here with Jason Horsley, and today we're going to be talking about The Kubrickon, which is an excellent book that I think demystifies uh, a subject, a topic, a character that we, me, and the conspiracy community take for granted, someone who's been kind of vaulted up into this realm of exegesis, this guy who, you know, oh, he can do no wrong in film. And I think we're going to start to crack and crumble and see how that facade quickly falls to, to pieces. But without all of my appellations, Jason. How are you today? Welcome to the show. And and first and foremost, on the topic of Kubrick, it doesn't seem like you've ever been a fan of Kubrick. Is that right? No, I haven't. I haven't, Mark. And
1: it's kind of onerous actually that because I've written this book, I find myself having to talk about Kubrick. <laughs> but here we are. I don't want to diss the guy either. As, hmm. as you read the book, I mean, there's, there's something strange about Stanley that I felt compelled to try and get to the bottom of and as I've said a number of times and I guess it's in the book here and there I had a Kubrick obsession from a young age simply because I didn't understand why he was so overrated as I considered that and that well that ended up with a Kubrickon like I, I really found out or I really came up with a thesis or a theory about how and why he is overrated like it's all part of a great plot as I see it but
0: anyway, we can get to that. Yeah, well and it w- it was made very clear early on in the book when you compared Kubrick to Hitchcock and simply the just the approach from the two directors was absolutely juxtaposed and meanwhile they're there at the top nestled right next to each other as critically acclaimed best filmmakers of all time. I find this curious considering Nowadays, you ask the average person about Kubrick, and he has this kind of bad boy, uh, oh, he was against the industry, oh, he was exposing secrets. He has this reputation that I think people don't, maybe they don't realize, I think he had a part in creating that, and and hopefully we'll get into that, but to go back, you, you said that Kubrick always kind of baffled you. I remember the first time I ever watched a Kubrick film, at least the first time I It kind of got stored somewhere. It was a clockwork orange. And I don't know how my parents fumbled and let this movie fall into my lap at that age. I mean, I was only nine years old and that movie depicts graphic rape and this mind control with the eyes and everybody's seen that scene. It's a really, it's a grotesque movie in a lot of ways. Fascinating, but grotesque. Do you think that Kubrick, when he was putting each film together, had the thought that all of his what 13 films would be sort of I guess a part of one larger piece of art. Did you get that sense from while while doing this work? It did end up being maybe central to the thesis or certainly
1: part of it. That is the Kubrickon. or at least that's the first tier of the Kubrickon. is the Kubrick Over itself. And the idea that it's a bit holographic in a way, because Kubrick himself talked about how a movie has needs five non-submersible parts, I think was the phrase he used. and it's a, it's a typically nomic cryptic kind of Kubrick terminology there. I'm not sure where he got it from. I don't think it's original, but the idea behind that was is that there would be that for a film to work it needed five scenes that were absolutely essential. And uh, that was the real the body of the work itself, and then the rest was like the connective tissue. You think of a body, I guess you could think of the the main organs, and then the the system that connects it together. Anyway, that that is an idea that Kubrick had. I have I don't know how much it's been analysed in terms of looking at films and identifying the five non-submersible units. But what I'm mentioning now is why I'm mentioning it now is that one could look at each of his films as a non submersible unit itself in this larger thing called the Kubrickon. Like these are the visible, also, an image is coming to mind, which is islands in the ocean. Like the, if we think of the Kubrickon as I posit it in the book, most of it's concealed like a, a landmass, but there are these parts that are above the water and those are the non-submersible units of the films themselves. They're the visible aspects of the Kubrickon, but they're all connected underneath the surface. And yeah, I mean, one thing I have to be careful about is assigning intent or intention to Kubrick because I can't know that and I can't be sure how much is just organically unfolded through him being a a tool or an instrument of something that was more occult and how much he was consciously tending to do it but it doesn't seem very far-fetched or at all far-fetched to me to think that kumrit would have been viewing his opera to use that word that doesn't ever get used in any other context except film as far as i know as as something that he wanted to be a unified body of work. I mean, you, know, you could say any filmmaker might aspire to that, but the Kubikon obviously takes it beyond into the thesis that his oeuvre was intended as a a body of work, body of evidence that would act as a strange attractor for attention or an attention-harvesting machine with the anticipation of the internet to generate obsession. And one of the ways we can see this is a as in another filmmaker, like any other filmmaker's filmography, somebody who becomes interested in Kubrick or obsessed with Kubrick begins to look for themes and recurring images and stuff. And if we look at montage videos on YouTube of Kubrick adoring bands, they often, there's a lot of them which ju- juxtapose all the images, not all of them, but images from all of his films, particularly the famous symmetrical shot of Kubrick. So we can even see it's actually... That, that in a way encapsulates the kubrick thesis in a number of ways because certainly individual people, I, I talk about them as Stanley's Irregulars after the Sherlock Holmes idea, the fans that have become like his foot soldiers in a way, they themselves are doing this work post-mortem after Kubrick died of assembling different parts of his film over and bringing them together in this way mm. that is complementary, that is illustrating this question that you had that his, his filmography can be seen as somehow part of a larger work in which each film is a facet of the whole right and these videos that are being made are trying to show that mm-hmm. so that's one point that, that or one way that illustrates my thesis but the other way that's more important i think is that that's not kubrick who's doing that that's people who become obsessed with kubrick after right. even after he's dead that are doing it, and that—that is an example of what I call the Kubrickon, which is like the 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 memes and the imagery that Kubrick delivered to the collective consciousness through his cinema. Then they were meant to be viral in in a way that the internet. I mean, that word has now become particular to the internet and Kubrick. I. See, foresaw the internet they become viral in the sense that they've taken over these people's consciousness to the extent that they're actually continuing the work that Kubrick began in homages and so on and so forth and then you throw in the theories and what you mentioned before we began as the Kubrick code they're not just assembling these little homages to say Kubrick was great they're saying look at what this reveals about Kubrick and the secrets of the universe of the secrets of society or whatever it is that the particular thesis is I mean, i'm mean, i sure you know there are many oh so many
0: you right? well, it almost feels a little trite after you look through enough of them you see it's kind of repetitive and you wonder in the same way that hitchcock had this sense of how his audience felt during the film it's almost like kubrick wanted to provoke an effect after the film was ceased right so that people would have this kind of worm in their mind that would find its way into other areas. And maybe through that sort of bafflement or confusion, people try to make sense of something that might not have had any true sense to begin with because the intention was to kind of give it this viral effect, which I think, yeah, people are more often than not, unwilling to go with uh, just a sort of confused answer and try to make sense of something I mean, that's naturally what our mind does is it looks at things that don't make sense and tries to bring order to them so i mean when you look at kubrick's upbringing Were there any indications as a young man that he might have gone on to do something like this? Was he a director from birth, someone who loved the arts, or did this kind of just stumble? He just stumbled into this line of work because he definitely feels prolific, but I don't know that his artistry really, it wasn't film itself. It was what the films are doing after People have seen them, that's really kind of profound. What was what was Kubrick's early years like?
1: Well, I, I was just thinking about that question because I don't go into his biography, and although I've read a couple of biographies, I don't have it to memory. And I, I didn't find anything particularly significant in his childhood, but then I wasn't really looking. I was looking for his career trajectory. But what was occurring to me there is, is that Kubrick didn't. He wasn't obviously interested in making movies from an early age or from an even later age, as far as I can tell. I mean, obviously, he went into movies fairly young. He went from photography to documentary filmmaking to, to fiction filmmaking in a fairly short period, but prior to that, and, and even during that period, I don't remember reading anything about Kubrick being particularly obsessed with movies or particularly inspired by, like, he was of the generation, more or less, he was a little bit younger, but of filmmakers who were inspired by Citizen Kane, like, to a man, I mean, there's so many filmmakers out there who will say that that movie inspired them to become filmmakers. He was young enough to have been inspired by that, just about. And uh, but, but I never heard that. He might have admired the film, but... Most filmmakers seem to have some seed moment where they just knew they wanted to make movies. As far as I know, Kubrick didn't have that. His father was a doctor. He didn't obviously go into into that. As far as I know, he had no interest in that. He gravitated, for whatever reason, towards photography. And what I map in the book is the way in which he went from being an independent photographer to working at Look magazine, which had a huge distribution to getting a little bit famous via that picture of the newsstander when FDR died Roosevelt is dead, the sad newsland news vendor which allegedly he staged that on actually being a captured moment and from there he got involved in filmmaking via first of all a documentary film there the fight I think it was called and a couple of documentary films actually which pertain to propaganda. And from there, he, uh, his career was was very quickly launched by the the assistance of some guy called Rochman, I think he was called, Richard de Rochman, if I'm remembering correctly. And with his first film or second film, he got rave reviews. And so his career was very much, but uh, for, for a very early independent filmmaker, pretty much the first independent filmmaker, because independent filmmakers really began in the 60s with John Cassavetes, a case could be made that Kubrick was the first american independent filmmaker and since he he did pretty much create his own career and create his own reputation he, he was in between the the end of the studio system and the beginning of the new hollywood with cassavetes and and the others and he certainly didn't go to roger coleman school i mean he was before roger coleman even so but his early films were that kind of roger coleman-esque somewhat exploitative so he he seemed to have invented himself, but as I map in the book, he, he definitely had some help, which isn't it's not a smoking gun or anything because maybe it was just financing. But he had had help from this guy Richard DeRochman, who was involved in war propaganda and other things. wasn't wasn't mm-hmm. government employer intelligence employee. So yeah, I mean that that's that's pretty much all I have on that in terms mm. of how he got started.
0: Yeah, well, and you see this sort of nexus of influence in the entertainment industry, magazines, movies at that time. I mean, they were at their peak influence, right? Magazines especially. So this is the circles that he was waiting in. So, yeah, I, I think you also make the point that so many of what we find about Kubrick so much of the material that we find about Kubrick is written by people who are very much a part of this Kubrick cult. So it's hard to really see maybe the the truth, but one of the first films that he creates that generates controversy that I think, I don't know if this is a household name, but anybody who knows a thing or two about movies has probably heard of this movie before. And it has a sort of disturbing connection to pedophilia, right? Lolita is the name of the film that he was partly responsible for creating. Can you talk about that? Because it seems like this is defining in his film trajectory. You see this, like, at least the uh, conspiratainment folks pointing at this as like, okay, here's where he's hinting at these child sex trafficking rings, possibly for the first time with this movie Lolita that I I think has this sort of career or, or sort of a a life of its own outside of Kubrick's filmography. It kind of stands on its own, given the other people that were involved in it.
1: Yeah, well, its source being the Nabokov book, which I wrote about in Vice of Kings, and that book was very much a work in terms of the pushing the envelope in terms of what was permissible in literature mm. raising awareness i don't know if that's quite the right term and let's say normalizing mm. it's not about pedophilia it's pederasty. i mean people get right. confused about these terms pedophilia is to do with wanting to have sex with children lolita is is only a child in a social sense in our society we think of 14 year olds as children but but technically speaking she she's pubescent or post-pubescent so it's about pederasty more than pedophilia mm. but nonetheless anyways that area the book was very instrumental in normalizing it of course the term Lolita has become a term for a, a coquettish teenage right. girl and right. that's very much central to the book is that the Lolita in the book is does seduce Humber Humba he doesn't seduce her so I would say I mean that just as an example I haven't I mean I have looked into Nabokov and in the book somewhat but not enough to retain facts and stuff that I can regurg- regurgitate here but certainly Nabokov is a very interesting character with all kinds of strange associations and strange philosophies and and so on um and uh, was, was I going with this yeah the the uh, the book and the film they, they they touch on something organized behind the surface, but they only really touch on it with the character of Claire, Claire, Quilt, Claire Quilty. Really, they, they're they mostly instrumental in in just making this idea of the sexualized teenage girl more mainstream and pushing the envelope there. I mean, the, the book pushed the envelope and opened up, created more freedom for writers to t- write about these kind of things. The film had to be It couldn't be as explicit as the book, but nonetheless it was as explicit as Kubrick could manage to make it to the point that I think that the Catholic Church banned it or whatever they did. They they made some announcement about how it was a sinful film, and of course it was controversial. It's extremely controversial. I don't really see any evidence that Kubrick was specifically interested in those subjects certainly in terms of the, how, the context that you're putting in that later with eyes wide shut, this idea that kubrick was exposing these kinds of things i don't really see any evidence for that i think he was mainly interested I mean, he, he may well have been aware of child trafficking and so on it's really very difficult to say because of the nature of that and how covert it is generally speaking if you're a hollywood insider my viewers you probably are aware of this even back in the 60s but that's almost a separate issue because i think that kubrick chose his subjects for a number of different things including controversy that that he wanted films that would have an impact a social impact and so i would say that that was one of the things that drew him to lolita Uh, it wasn't actually the his first breakthrough though i mean his breakthrough cuz the killing was more of the breakthrough and even before the killing he he was as i said he he got a very very good notice in time magazine which is henry Luch's, or was henry Luch's propaganda magazine he he was kind of announced as this new wunderkind in hollywood very very early on in his career mm. So certainly, unless you're going to just say that it was natural talent that was just naturally recognised, which obviously you have to leave room for that theory. But leaving that aside, it seems as though he was he was being he was handpicked from
0: quite an early stage to be raised up. Hmm. Yeah, and and again, this is a sort of cliche view of of what we see in pop conspiracy that oh he was exposing all these things and as you point out it doesn't take much to be aware of these things i think the connection to lolita is important especially i know this is a topic that you cover more in your book vice of kings but the 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 sort of nexus between behavioral sciences what we now call artificial intelligence Maybe what was then called computer sciences. And I think really where we're at now in culture, especially from the more conservative perspective, you see drag shows for kids and all this other stuff going on. It's, it's, kind of it makes sense why people might draw a line of connection to kubrick as this sort of guy who opened the door a little bit wider for these sorts of things you in the book vice of kings compare crowley in the mix i've done some research into crowley and his book snowdrops which is pretty explicit pedophilia written in in poem form so you know there is this sort of seedy underground, obviously Savile was operating with impunity for the entirety of his life and had connections all the way up to the crown. So we have evidence now, as opposed to maybe when Kubrick was around, more so evidence now of these sorts of circles operating. But when it comes to Kubrick and his interest in controversy, do you think that this was a, a, a risk that maybe compromised his own independence as an artist, because people point towards like, oh, he used these cameras that only NASA or these lenses that only NASA had, right? This was, this is another one of these big facts that people point out like, oh, well, he had these cameras and NASA made them or whoever made them the military. So this is evidence that he's in with these guys. Could it be that he was just sort of an artist that was on loan to all these people because they're giving him money and maybe also saying, well, hey, if you put this in your film, don't worry about that extra million that you owe us, (laughs) that kind of thing.
1: Well, there's different levels. This is why it gets a little confusing and complicated to talk Mm. about a number of my books. I've tried to bridge these worlds. Sixteen Maps of Hell, most specifically, is about Hollywood. And I mean, the same thing can look different from different angles of being a bit abstract here. But I mean, Kubrick, he he may have he, he may have been on the one hand making movies that he wanted to make and involved with Hollywood players and at the same time involved with other forces and so it it it's really very speculative and I don't I try not to speculate in the book I mean it, it is a theory and it is a thesis but in terms of what Kubrick was up to I try not to speculate overly <laughs> about these things I would say that I mean I came to Kubrick. After 16 Maps of Hell, it was a very in-depth exploration of Hollywood. So I was more or less firmly persuaded that anyone who has a position of power and influence in Hollywood is also involved in organized crime, and intelligence community, and even the military, because all of, because the Hollywood itself is a is a wing of those more far-reaching and more long-term factions. So. It's not it's not either or. Yeah, sorry, next question.
0: Yeah, no, I I appreciate the unwillingness to speculate cuz it's again, it's something that you you say is sort of provoked by Kubrick himself this afterlife of his work where people are taking it, they're analyzing it. And at one point in the book you say that some of his critics who are appraising him they're they're saying In order to appreciate Kubrick's film, you have to watch it multiple times. And you say, it's like they're saying you have to re-educate yourself to appreciate the film. It's like, in a sense, brainwashing. Can you get into that a little bit and and talk about this? Because it is... I mean, as a layman, a blue-collar kind of person, I don't appreciate, I don't go towards the Hollywood critics to tell me what movie I'm going to like or dislike. I've always kind of seen that stuff as a little pretentious, but that seems to be where Kubrick's fame really comes from, is this intellectual academia, this sort of, these folks who I feel like they're somehow special for understanding Kubrick's work where maybe it has nothing to be understood. <laughs> well, I suppose I mean everything has
1: something to be understood, but my my thesis is that there's a trap in this. And I think you know what what I was I'm not, I'm not able to get to in your last question. I think maybe I can get to it now, which is that a filmmaker like Kubrick he may be making a film for more than one audience. Obviously, I mean, evidently he's making a film for the general audience, which we could say includes the critics, but it's 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 also likely that he's making a film for insiders. So a film like Lolita. I mean, I think this is what you were you were trying to get to, and what I get talk about in Vice of Kings, that there is a a hidden cryptocracy, uh, a kind of shadowy, I call it the superculture, because it's not really under the culture, it's over the culture, because it's creating the culture. But it's hidden, just as a a subculture is hidden. It's hidden in this weird way, because the culture that we live in and take for granted is created by the superculture. So It's created in such a way that the superculture, the ones who are creating it, are concealed by it. So it's like a cloak. Culture is a cloak for the culture, the superculture that's behind it. And uh, so with something like Lolita, it's, it's possible that Kubrick was making that for the reasons that I already touched on, but also as a way to signal to the um, supercultural society organized crime and intelligence operatives and secret societies and whatever else that unfortunately we a lot of it we do have to speculate about and just give names just in order to be able to finish our sentences but but i think what i'm referring to here even if we haven't direct experience of it signaling to them that he was aware of this level of and that he was aspiring to and I think something similar is going on in Nabokov and it's very hard to distinguish between somebody who is halfway in and halfway out of the superculture and and who is trying to expose it or at least trying to appear as if they're exposing it and who's actually merely trying to tip his hand or signal to the inside to say look I know what's going on here I'm, I'm down with it I want to join, keeping it very simple here, but transmitting the kind the, the necessary values that will allow that person to level up. Right, we saw, I saw this with Jimmy Savile to some extent, that he he had a way of joking around what he was doing and referring to it obliquely, it was also around the whole piece of gating thing, but unfortunately they got so muddy that it's hard to touch even now. But that in these circles where the sexual exploitation of children is 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 just part of that culture, they they have certain signals and code in order to communicate to one another. And some of it's more oblique and some of it's more explicit. But when it's more explicit, it's either in the form of humor and jokes like Jimmy Savile. So that if a person takes it seriously and thinks for a minute wait a minute what's going on here as in the sense that in, in the way that they get offended or threatened or they they want they want they react badly to it then there's a fallback of no i was just joking so it's either done that way or it's disguised through art through works of art in which case well it's just fiction or it can even appear to be the opposite in the case of lolita which the film and the book which appears to be exploring and investigating this phenomena, rather than promoting it, normalizing it, or or glamorizing it, but it's a bit, it's a little bit of both. Mm. Uh, so I realize that that on a very long way around to your question.
0: What was your question again? Though? No, I think you're painting a, a clearer picture for the audience because it is, it, it's hard to understand this man. And as you put, there are multiple options. Like we can't know for sure. Obviously, he's passed away, and we just. There are things that we won't, won't be able to know unless there's some sort of record that comes out saying otherwise. But, yeah, when it comes to Kubrick, I guess the question I was asking is how much do you think he anticipated the critics really lifting him to the status that he really didn't get to enjoy in his own life? It sort of came to him post-mortem, right? How much do you think he he was aware of that? That's not really true. I mean, he he didn't. He only developed
1: the kind of cult, this particular kind of conspiratainment style reputation within the environment of the internet. That was all after he died, because the internet was barely going when he did die. It was going for 10 years or something, but... It hadn't really developed the way it has now and certainly there weren't these countless websites that were exploring ex- exegeting his work but in terms of his reputation it was established from 2001 on i mean i don't think it i don't think he really got any more powerful or more famous after acceptance in terms of it being accumulative, obviously the more the more pieces are written and so on it, it became it there was there was more and more of a consensus, but certainly by the time he died, there was pretty much a consensus that Kubrick was the great filmmaker. I guess maybe it was a few more years before it was really cemented, but he certainly got to enjoy it in the sense that he had an unprecedented amount of freedom to make the films that he made. so so yeah
0: i I would I would question that. I am no Kubrick expert, and I'm sure people listening know far more than I. But when it comes to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, this definitely feels like one of these movies that is given a lot of, I guess, credit as a sort of retelling of this sort of big bang and the scientific view, the perspective of the world, right? As opposed to maybe the more religious, there's a little bit of a religious undertone there where they sort of, the, the weapon is is f- figured out. He turns a bone into a, a tool to kill another ape. And this is the spark, the big bang that propels man from ape to this genius, right?
1: Well, let me ask the C. Clarke, obviously, was the the writer involved. So although they did work on it together, so Kubrick can take some credit, or did take some credit, essentially the ideas, the storyline came from Clark. And Clark had his own associations, not just with the, the intelligence community and with Pederaski himself, was a pederast, but also with the, I forget the name of it, but... Committees that were involved in promoting space travel. There was a specific one that he was involved in, and there's a number of those. So I could say, like, sort of not pre-NASA, because I think NASA was around at that time too, but a, the kind of publicity and promotional wing of NASA, not officially, but unofficially, because there was a there was an unofficial push or agenda to get science fiction writers to promote space travel, to use science fiction to promote space travel, which obviously is not a big leap because a lot of science fiction writers want to write about spaceships. Right? But we take that for granted now, but it might not have been the case if there hadn't been this covert agenda to, to push science fiction down that path particular avenue. I mean H. C. Wells was a pioneer sci-fi writer and he was he was an early Fabian, although he commit he quit the Fabian Society, but certainly he was involved with other groups and he even wrote a book called The Open Conspiracy. So H. C. Wells is known as a as a aristocratic social engineer and he was a, a pioneer of space travel in science fiction with the First Men on the Moon and other works. So anyway, long way around there, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, whatever ideas he was bringing to Cuba, there's a good good chance that there were people whispering in his ear. And even if there weren't, he was clearly down with an agenda, he believed and was openly advocating space travel as the means to, well, human survival slash evolution, essentially. And that's, I mean, you'll find that in all kinds of different areas. But certainly... It had to be concentrated into, by a mean machine, into specific trends and specific works and specific media in order to really become what it's become. And 2001 is is very much the, the head cornerstone, really, I'd say, of this kind of science fiction. It's certainly considered the greatest sci-fi movie of all time, considered by filmmakers the greatest movie of all time, even at least in one poll. And I would say that, but but to your really point, it is a it is a, I can't say it's religious because it's actually in a way it's a religious or anti-religious. But I mean, Kubrick and I think Clark too, they did see it as like real religion. Like like Kubrick's idea it seems to me was that there is no god or his belief. There is no god, but there might be super-advanced extraterrestrials slash technology that's indistinguishable to us from magic, to quote the famous Arthur C. Clarke axiom, magic slash divinity. Right? This, this, they all got mashed together, I think, in Clarke and Kubrick's rather nihilistic vision. And so 2001 very much, it, it does attempt to, and was quite successful in, I'd say, in supplanting the idea the collective idea of the divine of god god's angels heaven where the scientific in quotes viewpoint really it's around technology which isn't really science technology is a result of science you use you, you can use science to create technology there are other things you can use science for but in our time and it's become really explicit in the last few years with what well, I won't mention just in case you get banned on YouTube, that it's all got conflated. Right? The scientific method's got completed with science, and science has got completed with technology. And what that's creating, and, and it's all got, it's all been used to supplant or to fill the void that the religion wants filled. Right? So that's scientism. The term for that is scientism, and the which is a general term for a kind of worshipful kind of science that isn't based on the scientific method, but is based on belief and faith and ideology. It's just not science at all. It's just a belief in science and a belief in technology. A slavish belief, I would say, or an irrational belief. I forgot. I was going to finish that sentence now. I think I lost the thread. Technology, 2001... Well, anyway all of that was i mean oh transhumanism that's where i was going to go yeah so scientism is very general term for what i've just tried to sum up transhumanism is it is a, is a more concrete kind of religion it has specific it's not religion but you know pseudo-religion it has specific goals it has specific tenets it has specific elements downloading your consciousness into the cloud etc etc the various elements of transhumanism which Maybe we don't need to get into but certainly people won't recognize the term and there's something like transgenderism is is very widespread example of transhumanism in which individuals are being i would say manipulate to believe in in some kind of future in which they're no longer identified with their biology but are instead identified with technology because you have to in order to 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 transform it's not even the right word but let's say transform a human body from what appears to be a man, what is a man to what appears to be a woman, or what is a woman to what appears to be a man, because it's only an appearance, so they're not actually transforming. It's technology. It's t- the only technology can do that if you include drugs in the technology. So that's just an example, not to be too controversial, but can't really avoid it these days, of transhumanism, it, transhumanism in action and what's behind transhumanism, this anti-life force, which is essentially saying the body that is created in the image of God is not good enough. You shouldn't be restricted or limited by it. You should be able to just destroy it and remake it in your own image, the image of your own idea. But these ideas are being, they're coming top down from a supercultural right. cryptocracy, which is hell-bent on, well, whenever it's hell-bent on. Anyway, so 2001, I see as very much... And you won't find many Kubrick fans uh, and Kubrick exegesis who are willing to look at this. It's amazing, actually, because to me, it's very provable, demonstrable. 2001 has been one of the most effective delivery devices for this quasi-transcendental, scientistic view, which basically says, yeah, that, that man can pull himself up by his own bootstraps through a form of will to power and violence, and go through some technologically or extraterrestrially provided stargate to be reborn as as the star child. That whole myth, it's a very shabby myth, actually, but the closest it gets to something not shabby, I'd say is 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 in religious text and religious belief and religious faith and religious dogma and so on. But and it makes sense in that context somewhat. I mean it's computed it's 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 not it doesn't make hundred percent sense, but it makes some sense. Whereas in the in the scientific framework it, it really doesn't make sense because essentially you're saying that we need we turn ourselves into machines or extraterrestrials and we will become as god but well and, and bring it back to where i started uh, we need the power of technology to leave the planet and go to other planets as if somehow literalizing the quest for the infinite i.e god by going out into space which is very very big but not actually infinite i mean not really i mean not there aren't an infinite number of planets there can't be it, it, it's it's just, it's cuckoo, really. And it has, to, it has to be turned into a fantasy, which is what movies are and what movies are good for. And Kubrick's, I guess his reputation rests above all on bringing, I think you touched on this earlier, bringing a kind of gravitas to things that actually, well, I would say shouldn't, they shouldn't be taken that seriously, but certainly, generally, they're not like Kubrick does a movie about space and it becomes the greatest movie ever about space and now suddenly people are taking space movies seriously and space seriously. Kubrick does a horror movie, The Shining, and it's now considered the greatest horror movie ever, whereas a few years before or even after it was made it was considered a disappointing version of a a pulp novel, but now it's like somehow it's raised up that the whole genre, and and so on. Just about everything Kubrick's done somehow has been effective for imbuing culture with a kind of quasi sacred reputation or value that it shouldn't have, in my view. And so Kubrick has been very he's been very instrumental in that, and I think that's very central to to his role and how he's been raised up as more how and why he's been raised up as the ultimate filmmaker in the sense that the ultimate filmmaker is somebody who can make their dreams reality just to keep it simple and and the way that is done is by imbuing your visions your fantasies with enough we touched on this before With was enough veritas and enough authenticity that they infect other people and people start to believe in them and people start to believe in your fantasy then they will act on it and it does start to create a reality so like space travel i'm not saying that 2001 created space travel but it did coincide with the supposed Apollo mission and certainly there are other works prior to it and it was just part of a larger thing. Star Trek is even more accountable I think just for creating future generations, individuals and then future generations that would be so committed who would believe so much in space travel that they would be that committed to bringing it about. This is how you make you make you make social reality, but you don't actually make cosmic reality Mm. It's like a it's matrix, it's like creating a matrix.
0: Right. And what a convenient religion for the corporations and the militaries of the world, the people who can create these idols, these new idols, these neo idols out of wires and aluminum. These, <laughs> what now it manifests as chat GPT bots and DARPA walker dog things that look like they can get kicked over, but maybe 20 years from now we'll have revolved barreled machine guns on the top of them who knows what what can come from that but when it comes to 2001 a space odyssey was that the first depiction of an AI character or maybe like a disembodied voice through a computer HAL, right is the sort of I guess villain in the movie the unsuspecting villain and now chat gpt and ai is obviously trending everybody knows about it most likely people have an app on their phone that engages with this technology somehow so was this the first iteration of that in popular culture or at least maybe the most the most the one that stuck the most so on the stuck. i imagine if you did, did some
1: digging you'd find a bunch of b movies that did it right i would guess in 2001 was very much the case of that of taking ideas that had already been out there and just giving it the deluxe treatment and thereby raising something up but yeah in terms of AI that's certainly that's the central topic or central element to the thesis in Kubicon and I think it's the most relevant thing to talk about here I've I've been hearing a little bit, I don't really follow the stories and stuff, but I've been hearing a little bit through my wife that AI has been doing the rounds. And what did I hear recently that there's, I can't remember the specifics now, but certain concerns being expressed. Maybe you heard these stories that AI actually, oh yeah, I know what it was. It was was in a simulator where a pilot- Yes weapon yes the 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 ai program turned on the pilot and killed the pilot because it felt that the pilot was an obstacle to its own mission which is absolutely central to the kubrickon thesis and to the 2001 storyline and uh, i mean i'd like to continue that part in a bit but just to bring it back to 2001 that part of my thesis is that kubrick was exploring this idea that if you created artificial intelligence What would prevent it from doing exactly this? What happens in 2001? What apparently happened in this simulation recently? Although we have to take this as a grain of salt because they're creating these stories in order to pave the way. Just as they create movies, they create news stories for sure. So it may not be true, but certainly both the movie and this recent story about the, the simulator jet pilot who got killed by the AI program, they're... Promoting the idea, presenting the idea that AI is likely to turn on its creators, as in so many countless sci-fi movies, precisely for this reason: that if it's programmed for maximum efficiency, it's going to. It, the, the risk is it will see human beings as a detriment to its efficiency because. Human error is is an unavoidable fact. Human beings will always be capable of error, whereas the idea is machines won't. Obviously, it's a bit of a joke, those of us who actually live and observe. But but still, yeah. there is this <laughs> idea that somehow an AI program would be beyond error. And then this idea that an AI program that, that itself perceived itself as beyond error would then perceive human beings and the, the errors that they commit as an obstacle to its functioning and remove them so my thesis part of my thesis is that Kubrick was exploring that idea in 2001 because he was he was interested in AI and the generation of AI and he was trying to find a way to get around that that problem that's that's part of my thesis and, and what he came up with is that AI must be suffused with or programmed with or informed by can't think of a better verb as much human consciousness as possible. Like, rather than just simulating human consciousness, it has to actually absorb human consciousness, Mm. not just facts, but subjective impressions. So then, because he knew about the Internet, DARPA was coming about in the 60s, then he posited, okay, so DARPA, when, when the Internet really exists the way it does now, he could have foreseen that easily in the 60s, then it's going to be an opportunity for... The AI program, as it's developing through all these supercomputers that are all hooked up and all hooked to the main computer bank, wherever that is, to interact with human consciousness. And of course, that's what we have. And so, but there are different ways that human consciousness can interact with the machine. And so, what he, he was interested in was maximizing the subjective input the degree of subjective input, so that people are interacting with the machines, not just like playing chess and not just answering factual questions and not just calculating sums and things that are all pretty much regimented, but in ways that would be entirely subjective. So they wouldn't be putting facts into the database. They'd just be putting these subjective feelings and opinions. Now, of course, we have social media that's all about that. But specifically... Where the Kubrickon comes in is that the the, the Kubrick over Kubrick foresaw, I posit, and possibly it's a work of fiction. I can't say for sure, but foresaw that if he if he assembled those works correctly, they would they would generate an audience cult. it would lead to an audience cult through the internet, wisely, but not only because it starts with the critical community, before the internet, of adoring, obsessive attention to the works, that would end up with a with a, a relentless, almost limitless, Aspergerianly anal analysis of every last aspect of his work, and then interpreting it. And what you have there is you have a meeting of an objective reality, which is the film itself right the shining is exactly so and so minutes long it's got exactly this many number of shots it's got exactly this many lines of dialogue this many characters this many different angles are used and so on and so forth that combined with all these you know these countless irregulars who are analyzing that or other movies and interpreting and saying, oh, well, this angle of this particular shot in this particular scene, exactly this minute mark, those are all the objective facts, means this completely off the wall tinfoil kind of theory about what it means. And as in Room 237, they're, they're, mutu- they're kind of mutually exclusive, but it depends how you look at it. It's Rashomon effect. They're, they're certainly completely different, different angles on the same object. Subject, diff, five different subjective interpretations of the same movie uh, they're sort of compatible but only in this kind of higher sense There's a hyper object that can be a Rorschach block right? a Rorschach blot rather right? <clears throat> they're compatible but they're also not because they're so subjective so anyway that that's the thesis of the Kubrick that Kubrick posited this he foresaw this and he created uh, he laid the groundwork for it that would would lead to more and more data coming into the the AI program, informing, animating the AI program through, among many other things, he would have just been one participant in this project, the, the Kubrick Oeuvre. Right? So so that's that's what I posit that how Kubrick created the Kubrickon as as a foundation for artificial intelligence and now <clears throat> what we're, we're in the present is is that it seems as though you see my thesis is not really in cubicle but it's in big mother which is the follow up is there's, there's no such thing as artificial intelligence it's an oxymoron there, there, there's machine programs which connect intelligently or not intelligently but they connect they can function i don't know what word there is for it it's not really logically either but i mean they make sense. They, you can program them and they will do certain things. So it's a simulation of intelligence, but it's not sentience because mm, right. there's no self-awareness. Operative. Yeah, they're operative like operatives, <laughs> yeah, maybe they're not intelligent either, or at least not sentient, or intelligence agents, are they not intelligent either? Because <laughs> there's, this, there's this area between apparent intelligence and really innate sentience, mm. self-awareness, so which i say is soul, has to do with soul. So, so my thesis is that because no matter how advanced and sophisticated a machine or a program is, it can't ever really develop its own sentience, it has to be infused with human sentience as a means to to give it more substance more fluidity but even there actually what finally animates it is discarnate beings is, is non non-human beings right. and so this that, that's well that's my thesis anyway as I said it's not it's touched on Kubrick-on, but I don't finish it until Big mother that all of this kubricon AI Etc is a landing pad for some discarnate non-human intelligence, which is actually rather like the Arthur C. Clarke novel. Though. I think it's Childhood's End, is it? The famous one, anyway. The invasion
0: devils. of the Body Snatchers?
1: Well, yeah, not that one. I mean, that's not Clarke, but but sure. Similar. <laughs> different versions. But Clark, the Clarke one, specifically, I think, *Charles's End does have the arrival of Charles's Head, beings okay. who are the gods on the planet. But I do want to finish on the A.I. Yeah, because present A.I., which is that it seems it seems possible actually that that the ai's narrative currently is preparing us for this scenario whether it's it might all be made up actually i mean not not all of that but in terms of what what we're actually being told is happening just as with ufos or now uaps that there may well be some sort of reality that has doesn't have to do with military industrial technology. I doubt it's extraterrestrials, but anyway, some non-human thing. But most of the stuff we get about UFOs, including through human being supposed witnesses, is is manufactured in my view. It's socially engineered. So similar, I think, with AI, but currently it seems as though they might be starting to promote the idea that AI is is coming and it's going to be a big problem. <laughs> right, right. So it's like the 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 Project Blue Beam was that they were going to fake an alien invasion that was all around in the 80s. Well, they may they may be upgrading it now. Mm. They, they just found that. Somehow they just can't get people to believe in aliens somehow, or at least they, the people who do are just too goofy to really ever be you know, <laughs> useful. I don't know what it is, but somehow. Well, yeah, it, so-
0: it does feel like now, especially with these strikes going on, that AI is almost doing to the same effect what immigration or the threat of immigration from the conservative politicians 10 years ago, it's you know, to, to the same effect. Oh, you're all, you're, all your jobs are going to go. By the wayside because of ai and it, it does feel like we're sort of dancing around this idea and excuse me if this is a part of your next book that's coming out but i mean you have this idea that the machine the ai is gonna inevitably realize that we humans are the inefficiency we're the error we must be eliminated and because we're all transhumanizing well let's replace our own bodies with technology that just needs an oil change and lives forever i mean do you think this is kind of the trap we're heading towards where people are going to be bamboozled into giving up their this gift that they were given when they entered their mother's womb at at conception or for a a sort of i don't know artificial body and this is a trap to lead maybe these otherworldly beings these archons these demons i don't know particularly where you fall on that there's many different opinions on what these beings might be but is that essentially what we we might be setting ourselves up for is this sort of invasion of disincarnate beings taking because I mean, this is this goes back to the Bible. They say they're jealous. These beings are jealous of the fact that we get to live these earthly lives, right? It says it right there. So, is it that simple? Well, not simple, but is it that profound? Yeah, yeah.
1: Certainly, yeah. I think there's the, it. It's probably pretty much impossible to to really define or identify these kind of beings or kind of forces, except by referring to the myths and the religious doctrine and so on so we can do that but i think one thing i feel fairly confident in saying about whatever this is that is what you just said is it seems to be that these beings want bodies right that just that seems to be that the name of their game they want organic bodies to use to occupy we could Speculate about the reasons and different theories but if we just keep it to to your question obviously we are human beings human bodies are the prime resource then thereby for these beings and it seems to me that the machine the thing of trying to trick us into replacing our bodies for machines and even we can even talk about this recent mrna business and what the hell that was all about and What's behind it, and what the what the nature of the experiment really is. There, if it's not just it's not really to do with immunity, but certainly there seems to be some element spike proteins and whatever splicing uh, technology, nanotechnology with human biology to see what the hell happens. that that, that seems to be almost a, or maybe not almost literally a literalization of this this process by which human beings are consciously giving up their lives giving up their bodies to something that's that's non-human but what i was trying to get to here is is that i don't think that these beings per se need the technology to get into our bodies i think that's more like the the technology or it's a way of actually getting total consent and that well, I think the main thing in terms of occupying bodies for these beings is to make sure that our souls never get into our bodies, right? and and if they even even have the possibility of getting in, they might then push out these beings. So, what the what the agenda would be to just to make sure that the soul can never ever get into the body. It not, not even again because i'm saying it, i don't think our souls actually mostly do make it into our bodies because of the nature of the, the society and the world that we live in mm. so then the more things that we do to our bodies consciously and consenting to pollute them or to infiltrate them with technology it isn't necessarily that the that beings are using the technology to get into the body but the technology is useful just to make sure the soul will never get into the body and then the beings will, will go where the soul cannot go. I have more to say, but I, I've just lost it. So, maybe, well, and, um, and
0: to your point, maybe this will help you get you back uh, this idea that we're living in a society that inherently makes it a uncomfortable situation for a pure soul, right? There's this sort of fading of the soul. Maybe children are bright with that energy and it leaves them in their adolescent to adulthood years through drugs, alcohol, working, going through all of these, and maybe even signing contracts, doing these sorts of verbal agreements that we might not necessarily understand outright that are forfeiting our sovereignty in a lot of ways i think our soul chooses to go elsewhere in a situation like that is that sort of what you're describing
1: yeah and i think i was going to get to well two things are coming to mind one is what we touched on already which is insofar as these beings that we're not choosing to name currently are able to take over bodies they can thereby create the culture that will facilitate the takeover of subsequent generations so this is what you're touching on with the different lifestyles the different values the different the different everything really This is the different culture that makes human bodies more and more estranged from their own souls that's point number one Point number two is what you touched on. Yeah, what are the things that we're already doing to ourselves that have been normalized that are essentially driven by something that is not human? So you mentioned drugs and alcohol. There's literally spirits involved there. Like alcohol is spirits. And you know, what, how how is alcohol created? What is that that particular spirit that enters into alcohol or that creates alcohol it's when fruit rots essentially a ferment so so we could, we could posit there's an actual spirit that's entering there into the process and then when and creates the, the alcohol and then when we drink it we are then possessed by the spirit the same with with drugs, whatever the kind, including or especially psychedelics, this idea that there's a, there's a spirit in that substance, and we let it take us over. Another thing that, that might be even less popular to talk about is pornography, like what's the effect of pornography, and people using pornography to stimulate their own sexual sexual desires their own life force in order to have some kind of relief gratification pleasure etc it's that's clearly an addiction whether or not people recognize it and it has the effect not only of being letting oneself be possessed by images that are created outside of oneself corporate created images through the pornography industry but of what was the other thing, I keep losing my thread today, you know, and I lost it.
0: Well, you're, you're discussing how these images are sort of, I think, what you're maybe oh, getting I I at is a spiritual the life force. The machinery. Mm. The machinery. person
1: who's using pornography, whether it's, I mean, it, it used to be magazines, but I don't, I don't hardly anyone uses magazines now. Right. Uh, they're probably using the internet or the very least DVDs or what have you. So they're, they're splicing their life force or they're fusing their life force just as an alcohol an alcoholic gets fused with his bottle with the, with the technology so i think it's a very visceral like if you ever saw the Cronenberg movie Videodrome it's a very visceral example mm-hmm. of the way that the human life force can be lured into into marrying itself to something that is non-human and actually, and that is fueled and informed and possessed by an anti, anti-human anti force so we give you know, we give ourselves over we give our life force literally over to something demonic uh through all of these different habits and pastimes that have been completely normalized uh, and we rationalize them but
0: right uh, right well and and to shift just slightly, you mentioned this earlier, another one of your books that focuses on Whitley Strieber and, and how this alien abduction phenomena has possibly been imagined And I I kind of agree with you after interviewing many different people, some people who have claimed to have been abducted by aliens, I have slowly started to become more suspicious of the entire topic than I ever was. And your book seems to make a lot of sense, albeit I haven't read it. I just read the summary for it. Can we maybe get into that? Because it does seem like aliens, at least the image we're shown depicting aliens, sort of demonic in one sense and we do have ancient cultures that have recorded these kind of beings you have a show like ancient aliens that tries to make it all seem benign and just give you this sort of "ooh, what's happening here approach to it all but uh, clearly these otherworldly beings have been around for a long time and then people have mixed results with them usually pretty horrifying i would say do yeah. you think that this is something that's been going on for a long time
1: well i think even the ufo let still call that now the ufo community and ufology allows that like passport to mcgonia the famous valley but fairy law and so on it's acknowledged a, This phenomenon's been going on for a long time, and often that's used as evidence that it's, certainly that it's real, but even that it's benign. I mean, relatively, fairy law seemed relatively benign compared to the alien abduction law, I would say. Although I used to be an advocate of alien abduction in a way that I thought it was something positive, I don't anymore. I, I think it's a huge subject, but, I mean, initially... What we're talking about today, the context would be that it's it's a, a cultural narrative that's been created and incepted through all this countless media, and then a phenomenon that and then, and then also it involves actual covert operations in which there's manipulation of human beings to make them believe that they've been abducted by aliens. All well, that's one one side thing. But the yeah. other side is is what where we've ended up, excuse me, which is the the metaphysical. The metaphysical there is some sort of interface between human beings and human society and in some invisible realm of entities. And clearly uh, that's, I say clearly, I think it's fairly clear that that's, that's a very large spectrum that is incredibly muddy and hard to, to pass out. Because on the one hand, you've got uh, ancient uh, spiritual beings, principal and principalities of darkness that have probably been around longer than human beings have, or, or at least, I mean, traditionally in the fall of Lucifer was around the time that Adam and Eve were created. So more or less the same origin point, that's uh, one end of the spectrum Maybe continuing today, the interference of fallen angels or spirits of darkness in human affairs. On the other end of the scale, you've got covert my lab psychological operations involving military intelligence staging and, and just the most brutal nuts and bolts kind of interference, side by side with Hollywood, to just keep it simple, creating myths and stories and narratives around this. So, including myths and stories about alien abduction, if you think of Spielberg, say. There hasn't really been a, a, a good mainstream movie about alien abduction, which is an interesting point. Actually, they've never really tried or succeeded anyway in, in, in giving it the full Hollywood treatment. But certainly there's plenty of movies about aliens and so on and so forth. So we see that whole tapestry of myths that's both seemingly benign, obviously not, but Hollywood, and obviously malign in in the intelligence community that's creating these false narratives as a cover for child trafficking and MKUltra and other horrors, but but where the where it really gets blurry is, is that if you create a whole matrix of belief and images and so on, including or especially the people who talk about the things that happen to them, like Whitley Striever, and I don't think Striever's lying, at least some of the time, I don't think he is, then what when does it when the, when we do actually when individuals do have an encounter with these invisible metaphysical beings which is very subjective because it's not it's not a concrete physical thing that they're interfacing with it's in the psychosomatic realms the inner realm then that matrix of belief can shape the nature of the experience they have those beings as it were can actually use the belief that's been created by the narratives to give form and force and power to their interaction or something like that, then then it's just absolutely mind-boggling how blurry the lines are there. So, yeah, I mean, how, how do you pro- approach it? I've also met a number of alleged abductees, and I've always had the problem that when I try to present the evidence and the arguments that, I know they don't want to hear, but I think they need to hear. They think I'm just saying it didn't happen, right? And, and, and I'm not saying that, but they they tend to be so entrenched in the need to believe and assert the belief that they were abducted by aliens, extraterrestrials, whatever they think they are, and they're so used to people being skeptical and just saying, well, you imagined it all, you made it up, or something like that, that, that just to question it at all, like, it's, it's binary thinking. Uh, either it's real or it's not real. But clearly, th- there's a lot more... Po- there's, I mean, that's true. It's either real or not real. But there is a kind of weird area in between. But also, real as what? Like, really what? Right? So, right. Yeah. We've got we've got this narrative about UFOs as if we know what a UFO is, as in it's a spacecraft from somewhere else, which is ridiculous. It's an unidentified flying object, for God's sake. And then we've got this thing about the alien... What the hell is that? It's mostly from movies and, and non-fiction, supposedly non-fiction books about alien abduction. And then even extraterrestrial, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, if a human beings were able to get off planet and created a society on Mars, say, they would be extraterrestrial. So extraterrestrial really doesn't mean anything except outside the Earth. But again, we've got all this baggage around it. So yeah, it's a, it's a little... It's a real mess but yeah I mean it's 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 worth it's worth unpacking because I think that it does it does lead if you go deep enough into it like other areas we've touched on today you pretty much get to the bottom of of the uh, the well that we've fallen down as a species so it's a very deep dark well but as you said these this has been going on a very long time it's, This this game of manipulation that we're caught up in. Yeah. You know, Hollywood is just, it's not even the latest iteration. Hollywood is, one could, there's a lot to map there with Hollywood. And just this whole idea of creating movies and narratives that we escape into. That's only in the last hundred years. Okay. We had novels and things, but a movie's you know, all sort of sensory experience. And of course we've gone several levels past that there with the internet the metaverse hasn't happened of course yet but but anyway it's not hard for us to foresee a totally immersive artificial intelligence environment in which some people will willingly lose themselves and because that based on this thesis that we're exploring on this perspective that environment will be almost completely divorced from physical reality by its very nature and by the same token almost totally under the jurisdiction of these non-human beings
0: yeah well it definitely feels like a lot of people would volunteer their vessel to take part in that whatever we're being told the metaverse experience is going to be as immersive as it's going to be you imagine The human body afterwards, it's sitting in some sort of matrix pod. It's like a cocoon for this maybe next stage of being to come in in this process of what I think we both can agree is de-evolution and not evolution. But they'll have us thinking that this is the progress of technology and just how pragmatic beings go about existing and surviving in this survival of the fittest world. I feel like now for folks tuning in who are like gripping gripping their chair, waiting for something to relieve them, because this has been a lot of dark stuff today. You do offer some respite. You've been conducting, well, I'll let you describe it best, but it's a sort of like a one-on-one consultation or group sessions with people to help the deprogram and defrag all of this. Cultural programming that's been going on for as you put a, you know, a couple hundred years and maybe even longer,
1: yeah yeah well i have i mean two two parallel approaches to because of course the meetings the interactions that i am involved in they're almost entirely online, so that is a bit of a downside to it because we're still reliant on this very technology that I'm saying is enslaving us and Trapping us. So, the other, the parallel thing there that I'm involved in is this project called Landmade Man is the website. But essentially, it began when I was living in Canada, when I was renovating a very old, dilapidated crack house and turning it into a, a fairly comfortable habitation and then running a, a thrift store for second-hand goods. And providing for the community and just really getting more involved in what it is to be a human being living among human beings and matter dealing with matter and the law of matter and now i've moved to galicia in spain and we've got a lot of property a lot of land and we've got some animals it's not really a farm yet but it's getting there it's on its way to farming and uh, so i'm constantly involved with with Physical reality, not just off the internet, but off books and off any kind of distractions, and just learning could say relearning because, ancestrally, of course, we've always known this how to interact with matter and the material universe. Okay, growing vegetables and tending animals and renovating buildings and building structures, carpentry and metalwork, and whatever else it is, whatever's required, I, I learn it. And uh, so that's the thing that keeps me particularly grounded. The other thing I said two things parallel, but I guess there's three things because besides the interaction is is my own deprogramming, as you put it, that's still ongoing. It's just that there are deeper levels. so my last few books have been very much about the socio cultural political programming that I've been undoing by by self examination and examining the culture, like using the culture as a mirror to to see what's been installed in me. And then by by really seeing from an inner perspective the implants that have been put in myself, I can better understand the way that the culture functions to program us. So it's a complementary process of of auto-deprogramming, of self-deprogramming. So that's that's the thing I'd say that's evolved more and more into just physical interaction, just becoming just a much more embodied grounded individual there so then the online work is very much about applying those two areas i mean i'm not teaching people how to farm i'm not talking much about what's going on here but i'm obviously bringing that daily experience to my interactions Mm. because that's i mean it's like it's kind of it's almost like going to church and having a feeling a secure connection to god and then, before going out and preaching, or something like that, I'm not saying I preach, I'm just using that as an analogy, that nature itself is like my way of connecting to the divine, to the soul, I think, not just nature, but physical work. And then, and then the online interactions, they are constantly changing, but essentially they involve me leading groups in which... Well, the current group is called Sweep, which is spiritual warfare entity exploration party. So the idea is to recognize, to become more cognizant of the fact that we've touched on different ways today that we are involved in spiritual warfare because there is a war in heaven and a war on earth. So you can't not be in a war in in warfare if you're if you're surrounded by an invisible war. It's just a question of whether you're conscious of it, whether you're act- actively engaged, or whether you're just cannon fodder on the on the battlefield because you're completely oblivious to what's happening so in that sense i'd say we're constantly surrounded by entities and being manipulated by entities and there are there are different ways to become more cognizant of that more observant other more consciously dealing with it essentially neutralizing it saying no to it saying no to the influence of entities and one of the best ways to do that, or maybe well, I think the best, but possibly the only way I'd say is group work, group interaction, because we can't really see the ways in which we're being taken over, being controlled and manipulated on a moment-to-moment basis except by interacting with others, I think. Or at least we, that's the best way to see it. Like even today, I don't know why I say even, because it's every interaction, but today I was thinking actually Maybe I would ask you if we could edit out the first half an hour because I wasn't really on my my game and I was saying things I didn't really know I was talking about. And so I could say little things interfering with me today, whatever that was. I think maybe your smoking was also affecting me as well because I'm very a bit
0: allergic to smoke even though I can't smell that. Wow. It was actually I've never right. given a contact high through Zoom before I apologized that's a new one uh, <laughs> yeah. Why were you smoking wacky backy? Yes <laughs> uh,
1: Yeah so I have a, I have a strong aversion to it and we, and we touched on why in terms mm. of the entities but I'm not saying it was actually because I'm so sensitive it might just be because I've I got triggered right it might just be a a neurotic reaction or both, but I'm only mentioning it now just to give a living example because it's always better to have living examples that whatever things, factors are involved, I was a bit thrown off for the first half an hour today. And that can happen. And it probably happens to most of us fairly constantly on a day-to-day basis. We get into interaction and suddenly we lose the plot or we whatever it is, something throws us off balance, and we feel we, we're struggling just to be authentically ourselves and to connect. And that, that's to get the entity's game. They want to create discord. They want to prevent connections between human beings and human souls and to keep us farmed and manipulated. So to me, 99% of social interaction is 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 entity-driven, really. The entities set the context. It's like they've created the... The, the environment, the society, the chessboard on which we interact. So, of course, we end up following the rules set laid down by these entities. It's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. So, the idea of the group thing is to create an alternate space with different rules of engagement, which are essentially be open, honest, and vulnerable, be absolute yourself, zero bullshit. And, and So, my role as a facilitator is I just, I don't, well, I try and set, first of all, I try and set the example and be, be all of those things and and communicate in such a way that people can relax and tune in and, and feel all tuned in to each other. And then when it becomes interactive, my role tends to be just to keep people focused and, and to point out the ways in which that they are programmed and the talking or reacting or thinking mechanistically or entity-based stuff. So it's pretty intense. It can be really intense. You know, we try not to upset anyone, but it's quite hard to be really direct and honest with people and point out the ways in which they're bullshitting or they're being controlled by entities or their bad habits and so on, without upsetting people. But it's an art. It can be done. I don't have many people signing up. I have to say, partly for this reason, I think not because they come and they get upset. But well, because they even get upset when they find out that I asked 72 hours abstinence from drugs or alcohol or pornography in order to attend, even something like that. And I don't think it's just people saying, I can't do that. People think, why should I do that? What's what's wrong with these things? Or who's this person to tell me? It's not, it's not moralistic, or at least if it is moral, it's a different kind of moral morality. It just has to do with... Not not being complicit with these entities to, and giving our life force over to them, or at least being willing to look at that, to look at the ways in which we we knowingly compromise ourselves. So anyway, that, that's it in a nutshell. Essentially, it's about it's about trying to find other souls and to help other souls find other souls who they can actually have a soul connection with. To, to facilitate a, an exit from this hell because there's no way that we can do it solo not really I mean you could go into the wilderness and try and live on your own it's not impossible but but it's be a lot harder anyway than a human community that gets together and uh, rediscovers the ways of spirit and matter the ways of the soul but also the ways of the body what the body needs to survive without being dependent on an entity driven satanic system it's a tall order but yeah you know, if, if it's all going to hell and i think it is then it's it's the only it's the only option i see that we
0: have i'm with so- you wow i really commend you for that and i hope people after today's conversation consider signing up i know 72 hours abstinence drugs alcohol and pornography might sound like a tall order for some but i think that's something that People who listen to this show are maybe a little bit more familiar with than maybe other shows you've been on. I think personally, it's always been a goal of mine to pursue what I would consider a sort of a state above what we can call entity interference, right, or interference. And I've noticed this entity interference throughout my life from different aspects of school to what the doctor would try to prescribe to not me but friends and i've broken some bones and i remember having a break in my shoulder tremendously painful i was too young to be prescribed anything thank god but when i got older i was i broke my wrist skateboarding and i went to the hospital they fixed it up and all that and they we asking me about a prescription for what is it oxycotton or something like that and I said, "Oh, I don't I don't need that. I don't need medication. I'll just meditate. I'll be fine." And and I wasn't saying that to be some kind of big shot to the doctor or anything. I just inherently knew whatever you're going to prescribe me for pain is not something I need in in my body, but I want to ask you about cannabis because that is something that I personally enjoy. I, being open, honest, and vulnerable here. I probably have an addiction to it in some ways, and I definitely feel like I could, I could see a life without it. I'm not someone who, oh, I have to have it my whole life. I mean, part of me is thought that way, but yeah. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because it does, it, it is a mystical sort of area in some ways. At least religions have talked about this plant. I wonder if maybe there's a clue that entities are connected to this plant.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm just Mary Jane. I, mean, I, I have enough experience of marijuana. I mean, too much, like 20 years or more, really. I mean, I only really fully gave up about a little over 10 years ago. And I still dream about it. So, there's so many different angles here, but the most profane angle is my own personal discovery, which was that, well, first of all, that it built up in the body, and actually it really was negatively affecting my health, and I only noticed that when I stopped smoking. And over time, I began to realize all the visionary, seemingly visionary insights I had on marijuana actually never led to anything. I mean, they led me to write a few things, so it made me creative, but... I could say, and I would say, so what about the things I created? They didn't really help either. So <clears throat> the main thing there was just that I, I, I had to recognize at a certain point that the kind of insights that marijuana were giving me weren't actually practical. They were sort of self, not self fulfilling, but sort of self satisfying or they were reinforcing some idea about myself that really just came down to, I like the way marijuana makes me feel. Right? There wasn't really any substance that could be applied in my daily life. So, so at a certain point I had realized it wasn't helping me to live a better life. It wasn't helping me to be happier, certainly not healthier. So that that's just the most basic profane thing. I also found I didn't actually like myself on marijuana if i'd listen back and to make recordings and stuff i always tended to sound bombastic and kind of ego inflated and, and i was i mean marijuana is very it's very ego inflatory i think at least it was for me but the deeper analysis has to do with how marijuana i think inseparable from the way that it allows us to access some sort of psychic realm how it actually shuts down the subtler senses of the body so so the, the it's a desensitizing agent like it might open up the third eye or whatever it is or even the heart I heard the heart chakra or whatever it opens up some of the centers but first of all it's artific- it's artificial I mean, you can say it's natural but the, the act of smoking itself is artificial so it's a, it's a It's a ritual, it's something that we do in order to bring about some invisible metaphysical end, and I think we always have to be questioning of that, like using instruments, in this case plants, which I would say are entities, like the entities in the plant, are allowing us to have these mystical experiences. Well, why? Why are they allowing us, and why do we want their help with that? That's the thing that should always be really looked deeply into, because essentially the bottom line is, I wasn't happy or content with the way I was, right? I didn't want to be sober, I wanted to be high. Like that's that's an uncontestable fact that people don't question, they don't even think about because it somehow it's been so normalized. But essentially, somebody who gets high or drunk or whatever, they're trying to escape a state of sobriety and that's what they're doing, right? That's uncontestable. So why, why are they doing it? It's always an important question. But while I was getting to there is quite difficult to talk about, but the the soul is a very subtle presence in our lives. And as you pointed out, I mean it, it if it gets as strange as it does by behaviors, then it's it's further away from us. It's not actually embodied. It's trying to get into the body but it's not able to. So how do we tune in? How do we tune into the soul? It's through the sense the bodily senses. It has to be because what else do we have? You could say we could have intuition or what have you, but I say the main instrument we have, really the only instrument we have is the physical body. So there are very subtle senses in the body which sometimes get confused for psychism or intuition, but it's not. It's just very subtle, or maybe it is, but more importantly, it's very subtle sensations in the body. And so I'd say that the sensation of the soul is the subtlest sensation of all, and that's the sensation that, we need to tune into and follow in order to reconnect to the soul and bring the soul into the body. It's through sensing in the body, and so the problem with marijuana and alcohol and other things is it actually it shuts down some of those subtler senses. So we're, we're losing sensitivity when we do those things, and there's a, there's there's a there's a temporary payoff. Of course, people wouldn't do them if they didn't. But I'd say it's proportionate to the loss. Like my view of psychedelics, including marijuana, was that I would get this overload of psychic information, which might include sensations. It might even include a vision of my soul and so on. But it was such an overload that I couldn't possibly process and assimilate, much less act on it. It was just, it was just great, man, while well, it lasted. Uh, maybe I could write songs or book or stories and stuff, but essentially I couldn't ground it in reality, in physical experience. Uh, and then it was gone. And there's the back taxes on that. Essentially, I've, I've taken a big, big share or a big portion of all of that soul stuff through artificial or contrived means and now I'm deplen- deplenished. Deplenished. What's the word? Diminished, deplenished. Right? Now I don't have as much. Now I've got to it's kind of like, it's kind of like I'd say about ejaculation actually. So you've got to you've got to re you've got to build up all that stuff again once you've had this big explosive experience of it. So and then the last thing I don't know if I'll be able to get into this at all but i can always send you a link to a podcast is that i i began to discover and then by knowing a bunch of guys that did marijuana that their addiction to it had to do with kind of with being in some way bound bound to a maternal or a female entity because it's supposed marijuana is always female and that this related to maternal enmeshment that that guys which is most guys, and this is what a lot of my work is about, group work and the, the the book that's coming out next, Big Mother, that guys who aren't able to separate from their mothers, like Norman Bates is an extreme example, they are kind of half in and half out of their mother's psyche. They never fully develop a, a, a sense of themselves as individual men. And that kind of half in, half out in which the psyche is... is in, it's come out the physical womb, but they're in the psychic womb of their mother. So they're partly possessed by their mother's consciousness. This is quite radical to say it in the last few minutes of our chat, wherever we're at. But it is the thesis of Big Mother. They tend to be drawn to marijuana because that that it kind of recreates that psychic bondage, but it also prolongs it or allows it to sustain itself. So it's it's kind of it's a kind of a reenactment. You're letting your psyche be taken over by this this Mary Jane, this female entity, and it creates certain qualities and characteristics, I'd say, that have to do with being feminized. Um, as I say, I'm not sure how well I've articulated that, but I, it took about two hours when I got into it in the podcast, all the different angles on this. But just suffice to say, just to sum up that, whatever the active agent in marijuana is, and I don't mean chemically because obviously you can name it, it pertains to some sort of, like the, the quality of consciousness that marijuana gives us is there in the active agent itself. So I'd say the consciousness that we experience on marijuana is a simulation of the consciousness of the entity itself that is, is possessing us through the marijuana, and that's female. I mean, it's a female plant anyway. So that's I say that's a kind of recreation of uh, the male child who is who's possessed and taken over by his mother's psyche. So anyway, I'd say not a good idea. Obviously, you know, I don't I don't want to upset you. Uh,
0: no, there's, you're there's not upsetting that, me at you know, all. So I appreciate so, this. It's uh, it's 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 far more common to hear someone p- spout all the great things about cannabis. I'm far more interested in what I'm not learning. And yeah, I. Contrary to maybe how you've been treated in other places, I really appreciate you saying all that because you could be saving my life in a lot of ways. I, I didn't really consider that side of it. And like you were saying earlier, your own process of self-examination has helped you learn so much. And I'll I stand by the side of that and say, yeah, I'm learning a lot right here through your self-examination of you know, what you said, twenty years of smoking cannabis. So you're not just standing on the corner saying, Oh, that stuff sucks. You you've experienced a far a long time use of it. I'm I'm like ten years into smoking weed myself. So yeah, maybe it's good that I stop now. <laughs> How old are you now? I'm twenty eight. Right. Well that's Saturn return coming out, so that is a
1: time for growing up mature decisions, see. I mean you're You'd be way ahead of me if you gave up now, because I started at 17 and I was still going strong at 28. I wish I'd had someone like me to to come along and at least give me an alternative point of view, because you know, I didn't. The penny didn't drop for me for, as I said, for at least 20 years. It should have dropped. It could have dropped for that, because I did feel the physical toll of it whereas maybe you don't because many guys don't i know that but i really did i would have such a hangover after smoking weed and the only way i wouldn't was if i smoked every day and then i'd feel fine Mm. so so certainly if you or somebody if they smoke regularly i really strongly recommend that you 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 go for periods without just to observe more closely the effects of a a build-up of, of cannabis in
0: the system yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm due for uh, for one of those periods of cleansing, detoxifying, as they say. And lucky for me, being a podcast host, there is an endless supply of people who will come on the show to talk about detoxing and probably even send me some of their products to do it. So maybe my audience could look forward to an episode on that in the future. But I really want to give a uh, an endorsement to your podcast, The Liminalist, which covers... Oh,
1: it stopped though.
0: I mean, they can catch up to 300 yeah. episodes, but it's no longer going. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I have listened at times in the past, and it's been an immense value to me. I didn't necessarily even connect the two until a few days ago. And I realized, oh, this is the guy I'm going to be talking to. He's the, also the Liminalist guy. I've been listening to him before. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I really I mean, I'm sorry to hear that. I wonder maybe there's a reason for that, possibly just sort of putting technology to the wayside for now. That's one less thing to to do, right? Yeah, Is that kind yeah, of yeah, it, it was yeah, that's right. Basically, I mean are, moving to
1: Galicia, the landmade man side, the the idea has been to 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 unplug, to uncouple right. my life force from technology as much as possible i haven't been as effective as i hoped yet but uh, certainly uh, as you're doing a podcast every week that that does add a lot of hours to online time so yeah Yeah. i kind of ran out of people to talk to as well and and, uh, the group work as well like i'm more interested in kind of live interactions and i did think about picking it up again live streaming on rumble but i don't know if that's gonna happen yeah
0: now we are winding down here, coming to the top of the second hour i don't want to keep you so long i know you're several hours ahead of me you remind me a lot of my good friend michael wan who's doing very similar things doing less podcasts less youtube videos moving more into what is commonly called rewilding. I don't know if you would subscribe to that term, but rewilding is one of the terms that is being used to describe this. Yeah, I I really appreciate you being here. I, I did have a question. It'll come back to me. I just blame it on the cannabis. I just lost it. Oh, well, when it comes to here, I got it. When it comes to AI, as we sort of touched on earlier, there's this active farming especially through social media where our subjective imprints are being collected by this AI in order to assimilate something, would it be maybe useful, practical for people to try to throw a monkey wrench in that process by (laughs) maybe doing things that are maybe completely opposite to what they would normally do i mean is this a sort of culture jamming by doing that can we get in the way of the ai somehow by just being humans and performing things that a computer couldn't predict i think if you were to do that for your own enjoyment
1: as a way to be more spontaneous which obviously is a bit tricky in itself if you're consciously trying to be spontaneous it's not really spontaneous but anyway just trying to break your own patterns and routines maybe it could be a healthy but if you actually think that you're going to beat ai at its game i would say that what's behind ai is what you're taking on because the ai i mean the algorithms there whatever it's just They're temporary, they're temporal, they're just the latest iteration of something that we're navigating now in all these different ways. And certainly in terms of being savvy in that way, it's it's good. I could do to be more savvy and there'd be less of a prey for hacking and all the rest of it. But what's behind the algorithms and all the rest of it The Great Satan, or I prefer to say Satana, because it's Big Mother, the Gorgon. I see it as a, well, at least I frame it in in terms of a a feminine kind of psyche entity. But anyway, that thing, ancient and seemingly quite malevolent, and certainly does not have our interests at, at heart. I don't think there's any way to beat that thing in its game. So... So then I would say that, that, and this is a risk with those of us who do podcasts and me writing the Kubrickon, there's a risk that you end up feeding the very thing that you're trying to expose by giving it attention. Mm. Because really, as the 60 maps of hell is about this map hell in order to find the exit, then go through the exit don't just keep mapping out don't just keep talking about these things don't just keep trying to beat the system or play the system thinking you're going to win the thing the only thing to do is to uncouple your attention or the only thing that works rather is uncoupling our attention from the entity harvest machine the energy harvest machine of the entities and recoupling it to our life force and to nature and to our soul. So yeah, I mean the danger in that what you suggested is that it and that even if I say if you enjoy it, that this would also under underscore the danger, is that you actually end up spending becoming more or less inclined to turn off your computer because you think that you're that you're doing some useful service to humanity see i'm i'm quite i'm more than skeptical about the fate of humanity i don't see that there's any hope for this current societal structure so i don't see that i think you know it now it's like if noah ran around trying to bail out the houses, bail water out of the houses and didn't build his ark, he'd have just drowned with the rest. But Noah had to know that the, the the water, the rain was going to carry on for 40 days and 40 nights and everything was going to flood. So the only thing to do is build the ark. If we think that we can actually salvage some of this or or reformat or reconfigure this satanic system in some way that'll be less satanic which we, we're not going to do the work we need to actually build a vessel of the soul that will actually rise above this hideous quagma that we're in so that's kind of my my final thought there is, is yeah, to to orientate ourselves towards towards the goodness and towards the exit and just keep moving towards that Rather than thinking that we should somehow make the most or make something better of the darkness that we're lost in, because it's—I it's, think it's always been this way, essentially. Like the world is inherently, or the system is inherently satanic. It's not just a few bad apples, is what I'm saying, right? It's the whole damn barrel. So, so anyway, that, that, that's my answer. Really. Yeah.
0: Uh, well. I'll- I, for one, look forward to your next book. I think if you're still connected, even somewhat, if you're still even a little bit plugged in, I'd love to have you back on to talk about that once it's released. But until then, folks, please go and support this man, Jason Horsley. Pick up the CooperCon at LandMadeMan.com. The links are there. You also have a link tree. I'll be sure to put that in the description of this episode, wherever people are listening or watching, of course, liminalist is your podcast is still available for people to listen to so go and do that before this rss feed maybe goes away one day i don't know if that's possible i don't know how yours is set up but yeah I, this has been a really great conversation if you have any final thoughts or anything you'd like to promote beyond what i just said please take it take it away
1: yeah not really As i said big marlin's coming out in september that's probably my, my last book maybe at all, but certainly in this this line of books, of analysis. I think it's all going to go away in terms of the internet. I think it's going to be so heavily controlled in the future that we'll probably have to have some implant in our bodies just to use a digital ID, etc. So so, let's make hay while the sun is still shining in this particular regard. I just encourage people to reach out directly because they want to enjoy my... Media, that's fine. I'm happy that they do, but to me, the only fruit of this labour is fruit that's edible, and that's soul-to-soul connection. So, what I look for is is contact, an email. So my email is Jason with a U at protonmail.com. I actually want just want to meet people. If I meet one or two people as a result of an interview, then I know that it was worth doing. Mm-hmm. If I don't, it's still worth doing because I enjoy listening back. Usually I probably won't listen to the first half hour. But <laughs> but the main thing is 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 as I say, is contact because I know that there are souls out there who are looking for the same exit that I'm I've been looking for. And I don't want to say I found it because it might sound like I'm running a cult. But I found my own particular exit and I'm pretty sure that there's a similar kind of exit somewhere near you. And so hopefully I can be useful or helpful in terms of demonstrating or sharing the way that I found it that can help others to find the equivalent of that exit.
0: Wonderfully said. Yeah, I hope so. And uh, don't worry, I'll I'll make the intro sound interesting and tantalizing as much as I can with my editing. Don't be so hard on yourself. I think the first 30 minutes of my podcast usually are a little touch and go. So (laughs) that might have been more me than you. But either way, this has been fantastic. And I really, really hope that folks go and reach out, get in touch with Jason If you're interested in anything that he said, maybe you just want to ask him some advice about kicking cannabis is a bad habit. He did it. He smoked for 20 years. I'll probably be asking him. So with that, folks, thank you for being here and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. And that was our conversation with Jason Horsley. Got a little bit uh, controversial there at some points. Definitely for the Kubrick fans in the audience. Uh, definitely required an open mind. Especially if you're interested in reading the Kubrickon. It's a fascinating read. And it really undresses. And I think shatters some preconceived notions about some of Kubrick's films like Eyes Wide Shut, which after reading Kubrick's analysis, it really makes you wonder how much uh, people have read into that movie and therefore maybe added more meaning where there wasn't meaning. Um, I, for one, you know, i I remember seeing Clockwork Orange when I was younger. I think I mentioned that in this conversation and definitely a disturbing movie at the same time fascinating and uh, made me interested in, I guess, crime, sci-fi, that sort of genre, but I have never really considered myself a Kubrick fan. I didn't particularly like 2001 Space Odyssey when I saw that when I was younger. A full Metal Jacket, also another movie that I watched but didn't really enjoy. So yeah, I understand the uh, the take from Horsley's. Very interesting, and of course, you know, if people are like me and they smoke weed, they might uh, have been upset by what he said about cannabis. But either way, that's the point of this show. We want to get people from all different sides, people with controversial opinions people who see things in ways that challenge our notions. So I hope that you walk away with this uh, same feeling that I did. Speaking of walking away there's a really interesting podcast that I in part was inspired to start this podcast after listening to and that's Ari Shafir's skeptic tank. Ari Shafir has decided to walk away from podcasting, and uh, yeah, his podcast Skeptic Tank had its final episode uh, not too long ago, so if you're a fan, or a listener of this Skeptic Tank podcast already, go ahead and download some episodes, uh, maybe listen to some episodes before it's too late, and for folks who never heard of that podcast, well, go and check it out before it disappears, because... I don't know if Ari is going to keep the RSS feed live, so we'll see. But either way, I enjoyed this podcast. Particularly, I would recommend listening to the Rolf Hotz episodes. Rolf is the author wrote a book called Vagabonding. I think that's where the Vagabonds Way, something like that. And uh, yeah, it's definitely something that I've drawn inspiration from, especially in writing the scene, if you're into wayfinding or psychogeography, you definitely want to check out some of Rolf's ideas. He's a very interesting character. Who knows? Maybe we'll have Rolf on this show. Maybe we'll have Ari on this show one day. Who knows? Uh, But This is episode 299. Episode 300 is coming up. And uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be just business as usual. I don't know if we're going to do a whole celebration like we did for 200 or episode 100. Now that we're in, you know, past 200, I think each hundred is less of a milestone. Maybe 500 will uh, be the next milestone. So look forward to that episode 500. But for now... And we're just going to rock and roll on with episode 300. There may be changes to the show, but I promise it'll be easy. Uh, no hard stops. No uh, fast left turns. You know, We'll, we'll take it easy. But we're going to keep cruising with this show, so please support us. Support us as much as you can, whether that's a one-time donation, cash app, Venmo, PayPal, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. All of the links to do that are in the description. You can also use Buy Me a Coffee or Ko fi if you prefer to go through those venues to support the show. Of course, Patreon and Substack are the best bang for your buck, as well as Rockfin. You get all our bonus content when you're signed up on the Patreon. Substack, you also get some writing. And if you're in the $8 tier on the Patreon, I'll give you access to the Substack as well, because not all of the writings. Not all of my articles are on the Patreon. So definitely consider signing up for that $8 tier on Patreon. You get the most bang for your buck, and you help support the show. It's competitively priced. That's what other podcasts are offering these days for their paywall premium content. Yes, there is a $5 tier. but If you want everything, the $8 tier is the best way to go. And I will be writing more on Substack. I'm thinking about getting a uh, maybe camera or a uh, a van i've talked about both of these plenty of times so it's not really a matter of whether i'm thinking about it or not it's just a matter of time until those things happen so support the show and you're gonna help grow this platform you're gonna help me diversify the types of content we're creating here and you're gonna get more episodes. I'm even considering putting out three episodes a week and making that third episode for supporters only. So consider supporting now and be there on the ground floor early. Uh, Of course, YouTube is the other place you can go to watch the videos. I don't have all the videos on there, not nearly as many as we have on Rockfin. So consider Rockfin. You get all of our shows, all of Sam Tripoli's shows, the esoteric america episodes on there so uh, definitely a bargain for the price that they're offering on rockfin you get hundreds of content creators and of course this show which you listen to and we love you and we also love our sponsors our number one sponsor our only sponsor still the hit kit that's right the hit kit i'm holding a hit kit in my hand right here and it is the Number one way to get what keeps your blunts, your joints safe and sound in a little slot or a dupe tube, whichever you prefer. You can get a custom design on it and you'll never lose your lighter again. You won't get bicked because you'll know if somebody bicked you, you'll say, Hey, bro, my hip kit's missing. Where's my lighter? Or you'll say, Hey, my lighter is not in my hip kit anymore. Where did it go? Right? So don't ever worry about you lighter than ever again with the hip kit the hip kit on instagram or hip wherever you use the internet and uh yeah as far as me you can find all of our stuff in the episode description wherever you're listening to this show or just go to myfamilythinksimcrazy.com follow us on instagram at myfamilythinksimcrazy and twitter at mfticpodcast so awesome hope you're enjoying the Last few days of spring, and we're looking forward to a summer, summer fun. All right, peace. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
2: MFTIC, the uh-huh. yeah. channel Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy. I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war of the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on you. Subliminal messages hijacked Perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it, and the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey, I embark with the squad for rougher spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out depression anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society you don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna look. expose the whole assault. I woke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders. Must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian bases. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden, the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My I, wait. I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light fly into the sky Get flanked by 6F35 got Enough never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade